0: So thank you to all of those. You can open your Bibles to Leviticus 23. I will say this, I didn't expect a welcoming committee when I came back just after a few weeks, but I didn't expect, didn't expect either a welcoming gift of a bunch of Green Bay Packer pencils on my desk. <laughs> so to whoever gave those, I suppose I should say thank you, but I don't know if that was deliberate or they just ended up there, but definitely got my attention not even football season. Leviticus 23, for our scripture reading this morning, this will be our text as we'll finish up on our study of the Feast of Israel listed in this chapter. So let's start with verse 33, here as we consider this morning the Feast of Tabernacles. Then the Lord spoke to Moses, saying, Speak to the children of Israel, saying, The 15th day of the 7th month shall be the Feast of Tabernacles for 7 days to the Lord. On the first day there shall be a holy convocation. You shall do no customary work on it. For 7 days you shall offer an offering made by fire to the Lord. On the 8th day you shall have a holy convocation, and you shall offer an offering made by fire to the Lord. It is a sacred assembly, and you shall do no customary work on it. These are the Feasts of the Lord, which you shall proclaim to be holy convocations. "...to offer an offering made by Pharaoh to the Lord, a burnt offering and a grain offering, a sacrifice and drink offerings, everything on its day, besides the Sabbaths of the Lord, besides your gifts, besides all your vows, and besides all your free will offerings which you give to the Lord. Also on the fifteenth day of the seventh month, when you have gathered in the fruit of the land, you shall keep the feast of the Lord for seven days. On the first day there shall be a Sabbath rest, and on the eighth day a Sabbath rest." And you shall take for yourselves on the first day the fruit of beautiful trees, branches of palm trees, the boughs of leafy trees, and willows of the brook, and you shall rejoice before the Lord your God for seven days. You shall keep it as a feast of the Lord for seven days in the year. It shall be a statute forever in your generations. You shall celebrate it in the seventh month. You shall dwell in booths for seven days, and all who are native Israelites shall dwell in booths that your generation may know that I made the children of Israel dwell in booths when I brought them out of the land of Egypt. I am the Lord your God. So Moses declared to the children of Israel the feast of the Lord. Let's pray. Father, we're thankful that you do give us much to celebrate, much to rejoice in, for you are a good God. You are a God of love and mercy and goodness and grace. You not only have provided for us salvation through our Savior, the Lord Jesus, whom we want to remember and celebrate today, but in Christ, you've given us blessings beyond number. You've blessed us with all spiritual blessings in heavenly places in Christ. In Christ, you've given us promises, promises to get to know you, to trust you, promises meant to, to help us navigate life, to strengthen us, to comfort us, to encourage us. We're thankful that you've given us of your spirit to help us to understand your word and to live it out in our lives. And we're thankful for your care for us and, watch, watch, and your watch care over us each and every day. We thank you that as our sovereign and all-powerful God, you protect us and keep us from harm. And so, Father, we're so thankful for your love for us, and we rejoice in that today. And Father, we do pray as we gather today that our worship might be found acceptable to you, that our hearts might be sincere, that we might be prepared, that we may, as we just sang, behold our God today in all your beauty and wonder and majesty and might, in all your goodness and grace. And Father, may it rejoice our hearts, and may, even as we prepare to hear your word may we be drawn d- into that deeper love for you a deeper relationship with you and a more consistent walk with you and so father we pray for each one who's here today and, tr- and trust that you'll do a work in our hearts the work you've promised to do and may we be willing and yield it and, pr- and, and and allow the spirit of god to accomplish his will in each of us even today and father for those who aren't with us today we bring them before you wherever they are that you would watch over them as well and draw them to your side Father, we pray for those that ministered to this past week in VBS. We pray for these children and their families, that they too could, be, could come to know the Lord Jesus as their Savior and recognize him as their best friend. We pray the fruit that was sown this past week, the seeds of your word and the songs that were sung, might, and might continue to encourage these children to seek you, Father. And may we be faithful, not only to pray for them, Father, but to reach out to those around us to share your love. And so, Father, we're thankful for the opportunity to be here today. We trust you will just give us understanding, be our teacher and guide as we consider the wonderful words of God this morning. In Jesus' name, amen. Well, as we return after a few weeks away to this last of the Feast of Israel, listed, the seven feasts listed here in Leviticus 23, we come to the last major feast of the year called the Feast of Tabernacles, as you saw in our scripture reading this morning. And in verse 43 it gives us the occasion for this feast, this celebration, this remembrance where where God tells them that they're to remember him because he made them dwell in booths when he brought them out of the land of Egypt. And so this reaches back to the wilderness wanderings when God brought them to Egypt until the time they came into the promised land when they when they didn't live in houses. They didn't have permanent homes, permanent addresses. They were nomadic, weren't they? They were say were supported by their God and God caused them to live in booths and maybe at times tents throughout those years. Deuteronomy 29, speaking of this feast as well, mentions this, where he says, And I have led you forty years in the wilderness. Your clothes have not worn out on you. Your sandals have not worn out on your feet. You have not eaten bread, nor have you drunk wine or similar drink, that you may know that I am the Lord your God. And so God, during that time, says here, your clothes didn't wear out. You know, they didn't have a clothing store. You know, if, uh, a fleet farm or an l and or if you prefer Old Navy, on the corner to shop for clothes. They didn't go shopping for those 40 years. Their clothes never worn out. That's kind of a bummer, actually, if you like to shop. They saved them a lot of money. Their sandals didn't wear out. And, and God provided for them. He provided for them, man, did he not, And water from the rock. And so this is the occasion which they were celebrating and remembering how God had sustained them. Apart from any income of their own, any efforts of their own, God provided for them wherever he led them during that time period. And this is significant because this followed the fall harvest. You see reference to the harvest here. In Exodus 23, this harvest is called the Feast of Ingathering. This this Feast of Tabernacles, Tabernacles was always also called the Feast of Ingathering in which they celebrated this the supply of God for the present day, the current harvest in those days. Deuteronomy 16 describes it this way. You shall observe the Feast of Tabernacles seven days when you have gathered from your threshing floor and from your winepress, and you shall rejoice in your feast, you and your son and your daughter, your male servant and your female servant, and the Levite, the stranger and the fatherless and the widow who are within your gate. Seven days you shall keep a sacred feast to the Lord your God, in the place which the Lord chooses, because the Lord your God will bless you in all your produce and all the work of your hands that you surely rejoice. And so this was a joyous occasion. It reached back to the time God sustained them in the wilderness, and it also was current to them in their current harvest, how God was supplying their needs for food for the coming year and so on. And so they rejoiced in God's favor. It's also significant that this followed the Day of Atonement by five days. They had just celebrated the time in which their sins for the year had been dealt with. And so they're also rejoicing in God's mercy and God's forgiveness as well. And so this was a joyous occasion in which they remembered God's forgiveness, God's favor, God's provision. And it was a time to rejoice in the goodness of God. Here in this chapter, we're told that it's a, it was a seven day festival. It was seven days they were to set aside to focus on the Lord. That's what it was. It wasn't, you know, some of us have trouble sometimes setting aside a few hours to observe a a remembrance of the Lord. This is a seven day. Seven days with a primary focus on the goodness of God. It included on the beginning and end a solemn assembly of worship, uh, including the Sabbath. And we know that the Sabbath was always a reminder of God's provision for them because they were to rest on the Sabbath, recognizing that they did no work because ultimately it wasn't themselves that provided for themselves, it was God. And having to quit the work and rest in and focus on God on the Sabbath was that continual reminder. It also included offerings. In verse thirty-seven to thirty-eight, here it mentions burnt offerings, drink offerings, and grain offerings. We see the detail in regards to offerings. And it explained to us in Numbers 29, verses 12 through 38. We're not going to spend time in that chapter this morning. But it was one of the feasts that offered the most animals. In fact, in, in other words, it was one of the most expensive feasts to put on. There's over 200 animals offered during this week. And those animals had to come from somewhere, didn't they? They had to come from somewhere. They were bulls and lambs, they were, and they were also, remember, they were firstlings. They were quality stock that was offered yearly. One commentary pointed out that these sacrifices were very expensive, totally apart from the sacrifices that the people brought in their own personal worship and the great number of lambs slain at Passover. Each year, the priests offered 113 bulls, 32 rams, and 1,086 lambs. Amazing, isn't it? Expensive in in the economy at a time when you're concerned about just surviving from year to year. It goes on to say, if God's people under the law could do this, how much more should we who have experienced the grace of God. And so they, they did what God told them to do and trusted Him with the results. That was, the, that was one of the reminders of these feasts, year after year, that God is able to and faithful to provide. Now we're also told in verse 38 here that these were not only their, their offerings in verse 37, but their gifts as well. Their gifts, their vows, their free will offerings which you give to the Lord. In other words there was gifts above and beyond the normal giving of their sacrificial animals. You know we sometimes think in the old time Old Testament times that the people strictly gave 10%. That was that was their responsibility under the law and it was a it was kind of a non-thinking legal 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 obligation. But we recognize that 10% tithe was primarily to support the temple it was like a tax in some ways to support the temple and its priesthood. But even here we see even under, that lo- under the law, which we think is always legal and stiff and rigid, they, were, they gave freely. They have free will offerings. They gave according to their vows and their gifts. They still gave freely to the Lord, even under the Old Testament law, which reminds us to the New Testament instruction to you and I to give as we purpose in our heart before the Lord, which means that giving becomes prayerful, thoughtful, and joyful. And that's what God wants in our giving, is to give out of a joyful heart to the Lord. And so they gave above and beyond the expense of putting on these remembrance feasts. And then, of course, the key focus of this, other than the sacrifices which reminded them of God's grace and goodness and mercy, which pointed forward to the Lord Jesus Christ, they were to live in a booth for a week, made from branches. Today, we're told that some in Israel have a lot of fun building their booths. Sometimes they're over the top and they're extravagant and two stories and multi level. And, you know, they may not use just branches. Today, if you look at pictures, sometimes there's tent material, there's cloth used, but they have fun with it because they were were to live, eat, and drink in that booth for a week. There was no sneaking off to their, you know, their their comfortable king coil mattress in the bedroom, you know, for a couple nights to get some good sleep. They slept and they stayed in these huts these booths, to remind them of God's provision for them. But we're told here in verse 40, when he describes it, in the end of the verse, he says, And you shall rejoice before the Lord your God seven days. It was a joyful, this was a holy party, you might say. It was, it was meant to, for, the, for the God's saints to come together to remember the God and, and have a joyful week of celebration and remembrance of the, of the Lord. You have to wonder, did some complain? Living in a hut, seven days. The pragmatic might have said, well, it's kind of a waste of time and resources. There's got to be a cheaper way to celebrate this feast. And that sounds like a holy, sanctified excuse, doesn't it? The ambitious might say, I've got too much work to do. I can't take seven days to do this. I don't have time to build a hut. But if that occurred, and if we're like you and I today, it probably did occur, they for, we forget something, don't we? We forget the point of the whole celebration, that God provides as we put him first. That was the whole point of the celebration. Is you remember that I mean, they were in the wilderness. There was no way Hardy to earn an income and, and provide for themselves, yet God provided for them as, as they trusted him and as, as we can as well. And so this celebration was a joyous one. It was one to enjoy the abundance of the Lord, and also, especially in Jehovah Himself and His care for them. That was the key. It wasn't just in the fact that they had a, you know, had a cooler full of grapes and and and, and, and a, um, I don't know if they had root cellars or they dried their meat, but they had plenty of meat to eat. It was in the fact that God cared for them, but just like today. Giving the thing about giving isn't so much the gift. I mean, maybe if you're still acting like you're five years old, it's all about the gift. But we know it's about the giver, isn't it? It's about people who considered you, who thought about you, who who loved you, who gave themselves, and that's what we and that's what's the point of this is to draw their hearts to God, to focus on Him, that He cared enough for them that He wasn't going to fail them and let them down, He was going to provide for them, and this is a this reminder came to them yearly, and we need those reminders, don't we? And that's what this is about to remind them that God was faithful to His own. Well, we're studying these feasts because all of these feasts we found have New Testament applications. They're pulled over into the New Testament, and so let's turn to John chapter seven, where we see this connection to the New Testament made here by the Lord Jesus Christ Himself. John chapter seven. Now, the occasion in John cha- here in John seven we're going to see is that this chapter and the and the discourse that occurs is during the Feast of Tabernacles. Notice here, verse 2, it says, now the Jews' Feast of the Tabernacles was at hand. And so this this chapter is set, set in the context of the Feast of Tabernacles. It's while this feast occurred. And so when this discussion occurred, it, Israel was celebrating God's provision for them. They were building their booths and enjoying fellowship and, 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 and providing for those who didn't have need. That was one of the big deals of the, of the Feast of Tabernacles. For those who didn't have food and didn't have needs, they helped provide for them, and they just supported each other and enjoyed the love of God together. And so that was the context here. They were giving thanks for the year's harvest, remembering God's provision, both past and present. And one of the, one of the things they did, which, is a, which was significant to this chapter... Is the drawing of water? It was customary. It was a festival ritual, when the when the priest would make, along with those who came with them, a daily solemn procession to the Gihon spring, and a priest would then fill a gold pitcher with water, while the choir sang Isaiah 12:3. And Isaiah 12:3, the end of the verse says this: "Therefore, with joy you will draw water from the wells of salvation." And that's what they would sing. It was symbolic. Remember, Israel is a very symbolic people. It was symbolic to them of God's provision. And so they would take this, this pitcher of water, they would return to the, back to the temple and pour it out on the altar. And it was meant to be a reminder of God's provision of water in the wilderness at Meribah. Remember when Moses struck the rock? Psalm 78, 15, and 16 refer to this when he says he split the rocks in the wilderness and gave them drink in abundance like the depths. He also brought streams out of the rock and caused waters to run down like rivers. So this this hitting the rock and providing water wasn't just a trickle that they could all lap up a little dampness from. This was this was abundance. God always in the scriptures pictures in his provision for us abundance. He brought streams out of the rock, waters that ran down like rivers. And that's this that's therefore they went through this ritual of pouring out this water on the altar to remind them that even when they were in a dry and thirsty land, you might say, without water. God provided for them in abundance. Celebrating once again God's, the abundance of God's loving care for them. So it was in this context that we're going to jump down to the end of this chapter. Look at verse 37, the familiar verses, where Jesus decided to st- stand up and say something. On the, on the last day, that great day of the feast, Jesus stood and cried out, saying, If anyone thirsts, let him come to me and drink. He who believes in me, as the scripture has said, out of his heart will flow rivers of living water. So in this context, with this backdrop, Jesus makes his declaration that, that he, he takes them from, from the physical illustration to the spiritual reality that in him we find living water. He reveals himself as a source of living water, capitalizing on the context. You know... Sometimes when you move from place to place, you're not always sure what kind of water you're going to run into are you? when you when you when you dig when you tap, dig a well, tap into a well, move into a house that has an existing well. You know, we're from northern Minnesota and uh, when you live in the city, you get whatever the city offers you, whatever chemicals they put in there to help you be more healthy, so they say. And if you live where my wife is from northern Minnesota in iron ore country, you get iron ore water. You get very much an iron-tasting water. Some places you run into sulfur. Have anybody ever had that, sulfur in the water? And, um, or places where you turn the tap on it's nothing but muddy. Some water just doesn't taste well. I, fortunately live in a place where our water is pretty good. But we get different qualities of water, don't we? And that's somewhat like the illustration of water in a Christian life. Jesus is the living water. He's the pure water. He is going to bring the ultimate refreshment and abundance to life where so often we turn to the stale waters of this world, don't we, for our fulfillment rather than the Lord Jesus. So this is the invitation. Now it's also significant, Back, if you go back to chapter 6, which is on the eve of the Feast of Tabernacles, Jesus gave the Bread of Life discourse here in John chapter 6. Look at verse 47 here in John chapter 6, just for a few verses out of this chapter, where he said, Most Most assuredly I say to you, he who believes in me has everlasting life. I am the bread of life. Your fathers ate the manna in the wilderness and are dead. This is the bread which comes down from heaven, the one that one may eat of it and not die. I am the living bread which came down from heaven. If anyone eats of this bread, he will live forever. And the bread that I shall give is my flesh, which I shall give for the life of the world. And the Jews therefore quarreled among themselves, and so on. And so here the bread of life discourse is given in anticipation. And no doubt at this time the Jews are making plans for you know, who's going to make the biggest hut, who's going who's to outdo their neighbor, and so on, and what they're going to do for the following week. And so at a time when the Jews are going to remember that their clothing didn't wear out, their shoes didn't wear out, God provided water, God provided food, Jesus gives the bread of life discourse. And so we really have both aspects of God's provision surrounding here the Feast of Tabernacles. It brought over in a, reality, in a spiritual reality here in the Lord Jesus Christ in the New Testament. both both fulfilled in Jesus Christ as the way of salvation and the source and sustainer of life. In John 6, we have the salvation aspect, the fact that Jesus was going to give his flesh for the world, that we might have eternal life. And he, according to verse 51, he would give himself, and he did give himself for our sins. And the requirement to enjoy that bread of life was to eat of him or to partake of that bread he defines that in verse 47 as believing in him. And the result in verse 50 and 51 here is to live forever. That's one of our greatest needs. And Jesus was that, spirit, that reality that fulfilled the picture of the manna in the wilderness that sustained and gave physical life. Jesus is the one who provides spiritual life, eternal life, through his death on the cross. In chapter 7, we have the analogy of the Christian life, of enjoying living water the abundance of living water, which of which one characteristic is joy. Notice here in John, it says in the next verse, after verse 38, after living water, verse 39 says, But this he spoke concerning the Spirit, whom those believing in him would receive, for the Holy Spirit was not yet given, because Jesus was not yet glorified. And so the Spirit of God had not yet been sent at this point of time, but he spoke concerning the Spirit. And one of the fruits of the Spirit is love, joy, and peace. You see, it's the abundance of life, the fullness of life that is found in Jesus Christ. And this, again, was set in the context of a joyous festival and celebration. And Jesus wants to remind them that he is the essence of life, spiritual life, the living water, which brings abundance, rivers of water, rivers of life. And that's what should characterize our life, not only joy, but if we consider the fruit of the Spirit, <clears throat> Excuse me, in Galatians chapter 5, it is really the fullness of life that Jesus provides for us. And so the invitation here in, verse, in these verses if anyone thirsts, come to me and drink. If anyone thirsts. And he wants to point out to all of us that there is a natural thirst in our lives for God Himself. God created us to, to live in relationship with Him. And a dependent faith, in a joyous communion with our God. And sometimes, you know, apart from Him, we're empty. That's why the world is looking for to satisfy that thirst through various ways and means, many of which disclude the Lord. And Jesus says, if you thirst, and that thirst may involve the need for salvation, might involve the need to deal with the guilt of sin, it might need... The need to have peace with God or meaning and purpose in life it might be because my life lacks joy and fulfillment. It's empty. It doesn't have purpose and meaning. Whatever that thirst that God has created in our lives, Jesus says, if this is the case and if we're honest, it is true, then come, come to him, find that fullness of life you're looking for in a relationship with Jesus Christ and the promise then is joy, joy representing fullness of life one commentary described this as a continual source of satisfaction these continuous living waters found in a walk with the lord jesus christ one of my favorite verses of many psalm sixteen eleven says you will show me the path of life in your presence is fullness of joy at your right hand are pleasures forevermore these are things that should characterize the christian life and that's why water is often used in the Bible to, to signify life and fullness. Isaiah 32 2 says this A man will be as a hiding place from the wind and a cover from the tempest, as rivers of water in a dry place, as the shadow of a great rock in a weary land. This is describing a believer who's restored to a right relationship with God. Isaiah 44 verses 2 and 3 says this Thus says the Lord who made you. And formed you from the womb who will help you. Fear not, O Jacob, my servant, and you, Jeshurun, whom I have chosen, for I will pour water on him who is thirsty and floods on the dry ground. I will pour my spirit on your descendants and my blessing on your offspring. I like this one Isaiah fifty-eight eleven. The Lord will guide you continually and satisfy your soul in drought. Strengthen your bones. You shall be like a watered garden and like a spring of water whose waters do not fail. And just like the drought we seem to be experiencing in our area today. And if I wasn't out there fighting mosquitoes, watering the garden every night, our, our crop would fail. But God never fails. His waters continually. He, he's water, his waters do not fail. The waters of life he provides. Of course, we have the New Testament verse previous to this in John 4, Speaking once again in a water context to the woman at the well, where he says, but whoever drinks of the water that I shall give him will never thirst. It satisfies. But the water that I shall give him will become in, a, in him a fountain of water, springing up into everlasting life. I think the Bible makes it clear that in him we really find fullness of life, and we look for, we look for it in so many of the wrong places. Therefore, in John seven thirty seven, the invitation is to come. And that may refer to salvation for some. but It says, come. It's a decision we make to come to him. First of all, for salvation. And then to drink. That means to, to partake of him. To find joy in the fullness of his life. John 15, 9-11 says this, As the Father loved me, I also have loved you. Abide in my love. If you keep my commandments, you abide in my love just as I have kept my Father's commandments and abide in his love. These things I have spoken to you that my joy might remain in you and that your joy might be full. That's God's intent for us, fullness of joy. John carries that over in his first epistle, the first John, where he says, that which is from the beginning, which we have heard, which we have seen with our eyes, which we have looked upon, our hands have handled concerning the word of life, the Lord Jesus. That life was manifested, we have seen and bear witness and declare to you the eternal life, which was with the Father, was manifested to us. That which we have seen and heard, we declare to you, that you also may have fellowship with us. And truly our fellowship was with the Father, with His Son, Jesus Christ. And these things we write to you, that your joy may be full. That's God's intent. It's found in a fellowship, in a communion, in a, in a, in a walk with the Lord Jesus Christ. And therefore we're to drink. That's the instruction. We're to drink. We're to partake of Him. You know, throughout the Bible, we see that a relationship with the Lord, Jesus, with Jehovah God, is characterized by fullness, a joy, and abundance. With Israel, it was primarily physical abundance. For the New Testament believer, it is primarily a spiritual abundance, fullness of life found in Christ, a life lived on a spiritual plane in a faith relationship with our Savior. But then we have to ask ourselves, this is normal. You might, I, When I read these things, I think, what's lacking in my life? What are the things that are joy robbers in our lives? And the real issue isn't trying to identify those things that that are cheap substitutes, the world's substitutes for joy. The issue, obviously, as we've read in this context, is the consideration of the source and object of the believer's joy. Drawing near to God himself in all his love and his grace and his goodness to us. You see, mankind's relationship to God was ruined at the fall, wasn't it? They, Adam and Eve enjoyed that intimacy. What's being described here as the fullness of life and the joy of the Lord, they enjoyed before sin entered entered man's experience. And, and, and God saved the believer, redeemed a believer, so that he can enjoy that fullness once again. And yet often sin and independence, that same independence and rebellion that, that plagued Adam and Eve can often ex- rear itself in our lives. And therefore short-circuit our enjoyment of our God, lacking joy, peace, and contentment, and power in our lives. And God wants to continue to remind us that He is for us, just like in these festivals. This is a reminder that God loved them, cared for them. He was for them. In the New Testament, we find in 2 Corinthians 6:18 that God would father us. In Galatians 5, we find that the Holy Spirit empowers and enables us. In John chapter 10, we find the Lord Jesus, the good shepherd who would shepherd us. God wants to be involved in our lives. You know, and that was pictured in Israel because in that wandering in the wilderness, when the tabernacle was the center of their worship, when they camped and camped in their booths or tents, whichever it came to be, they, 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 all their tents surrounded the tabernacle. And they all faced the tabernacle. And that wasn't just some ritualistic thing. It was was meant to teach them something, that life centered around the presence of God. Because that tabernacle was the place where sins were dealt with and God's presence existed amongst them. And it was to be to their focus. It was to also identify them together as the people of God, united together by the covenant promises of God, the presence of God. And when God moved, they moved. Where God went, they went together. And these festivals were meant to remind them of that, of that intimate relationship that God wants with his people. Remember Ezra and Nehemiah, <coughs> excuse me, after Israel was in captivity in Babylon for 70 years, and, they, and then they re- returned to the land, a remnant returned to the land to rebuild the temple and the city and so on. Well, Nehemiah chapter 8, we find that they also, was the occasion when they returned to the word of God. The scriptures had been ignored and neglected by them for years. And, and Ezra, Ezra stood up, and with all the different leaders of Israel, they read and explained the scriptures while people stood from morning till midday. That still amazes me. They stood while the scriptures were read for half a day, or, or close to it, while the scriptures were read. And it tells us in that account that they were attentive to it, to the reading. And they replied in verse 6 of chapter 8, amen, amen, which means we agree with this. We accept it. We're enjoying what we've heard. And their response in verse 5 was worship. In verse 9, they were weeping for all they had missed or forgotten. And in verses 10 and 18, they came to understand that it was the time of Feast of Tabernacles. And so they got excited and they began building booths. And Nehemiah verse eight, chapter 8 verses 10 and 11 says this, then he said to them, go your way, eat the fat and drink the sweet and send portions to those for whom nothing is prepared. For this day is holy to the Lord. Do not sorrow, for the joy of the Lord is your strength. So the Levites quieted all the people, saying, Be still, for the day is holy and do not be grieved." And so then they rejoiced, they fellowshiped together, they ministered to each other, they built their booze. And we find then in chapter 9, this was more than an emotional response. For in chapter 9 we find... Repentance and tears as an evidence of true revival and drawing near to their God in submission to His will. You know, these festivals that we've studied all included these solemn meetings, these solemn assemblies. Maybe solemn because it was a time to reflect on their relationship to their God. Had, had, had this in this past year or days or weeks they walked with their God? In fact, when you look several years after the account in Nehemiah, we find near the end of the re- record of the Old Testament period in Haggai that God tells them to consider their ways. The verses in Haggai chapter 1, verses 5 and 6 says this, Now for thus says the Lord of hosts, consider your ways. You have sown much and bring in little. You eat, but you don't have enough. You drink, but you are not filled with drink. You clothe yourselves, but no one's warm. And he who earns wages earns wages to be put into bags with holes. That sounds like, it sounds like our life sometimes, doesn't it? And it goes on in verse 9 to say, You looked for much, but indeed it came to little. When you brought it home, it blew away. Why, says the Lord of hosts? Because my house is in ruins, and every one of you runs to his own house. And the problem was, is they were busy building their little mansions and had neglected the worship of God. They were involved with this world and this life, and they had forgotten the Lord, and they were living in sparseness. This is the people of Jehovah God, the ones that God intended to live with abundance and joy that He would supply, supply their needs. And He says, just take a look at your life, that's sparse, and, it, and and you're the people of God. It doesn't need to be like this. But God had allowed it to get their attention, because though they had returned to the land, their hearts had not fully returned to the Lord God, is the problem that is identified here. And so as we consider the words of the Lord Jesus this morning, we have to ask ourselves. It's only normal to ask ourselves some questions. How's my walk with the Lord? Is there spiritual sparseness? Does it lack the joy in the fullness of life that Jesus identified that river's a living water that would flow from my life? You know, by spending time with him through the word and prayer and fellowship with the saints... These are good questions to ask ourselves, especially as we come today to our feast, because we today we celebrate a New Testament feast, the Feast of the Lord's Table. The Lord's Table in Luke 22 was instituted during the Passover feast, over a meal. And it is that celebration that we celebrate today. as a remembrance that was established by the Lord Jesus to help us to remember Him for the same purpose that we've seen in these Old Testament feasts, to remind us of our God of his personal love for us, of his provision for us, of the great victory that was won at the cross in accomplishing our victory. Therefore, it is with joy that we celebrate our Lord today with the intention that we walk out the door like spring heifers, clicking our heels and jumping spiritually for joy, so to speak. Now, if anybody was going to jump, leave this church and jump up and click their heels, let me get my phone out first, but you get the point. That's God's intention for us. And I think if it lacks in our lives, we have, to, we have to take a step back and ask ourselves, why is there sparseness, spiritual sparseness and lack of meaning in my life when I know the God of the universe, a God who is for me, who God, God who will lead me and provide for me, a God who says the joy of the Lord is my strength. And so what's with that? thought, we consider what the Lord has done for us as we consider the Lord's table, a time in which we're to remember him and to honor him and to rejoice in him. And before we go on and and do that, let's pray. Father, thank you for these reminders, Father. such a wonderful connection we see between these Old Testament feasts and their New Testament fulfillments in Christ and in his church. Thank you, Father, for the joy that you provide, Father, not the happiness of the world found in happenings, Father, but a joy that is rooted in a God who is for us. Even when life uh, turns ugly, we find joy in your presence, in your promises, in your, in your promise that all things work together for good, the promise that you are sovereignly watching over us. Father, we rejoice in you. And Father, help us in our lives to be honest before you, to consider our walk with you. Is, do these things characterize our lives? And even as we celebrate our Lord today, may it bring joy to our hearts. Maybe be something we rejoice in to remember what a great price was paid, what a terrible eternity we escaped, and what a great privilege we have to walk with our God today because of the cross and resurrection of the Lord Jesus Christ. So draw our hearts to, to Him. May we rejoice in Him not only this hour, but every day. And, and, as, and may we learn to walk in that fullness of life You've intended us. May we allow the rivers of life to flow through us as we walk in the Spirit as we walk in faith, as we walk with our hand in the hand of our God who fathers us, as we follow our shepherd, our great shepherd in our daily lives. In Jesus' name.